Last summer, I gave a whole day of recollection on that very subject uh, here at the parish. And one of those talks that I gave was particularly well received. So what I did was I kind of rehashed it. So if you heard me last summer, you can hear it again. But um, if you didn't hear me last summer, uh, um, I hope hope there's something that you find find helpful. Um, So, you know, it, it all began when I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal with a provocative title. And the title was, Marriage is a Dying Institution. So I kept on reading, and it went on to quote the illustrious Cameron Diaz as the moral authority, who said, quote, I don't think we should live our lives in relationships based off old traditions that don't suit our world any longer. And the article went on to describe how marriage leads to suffering, increases stress, depletes energy, saps optimism, flattens passion, and causes depression. And if you keep on reading the article with a critical eye, though, you'd realize that every time they criticized marriage, what they were really doing was criticizing its ability to provide individual personal fulfillment. And that presumes that individual personal fulfillment is supposed to be the goal and the purpose of marriage, okay? But it's that kind of selfism that's what's killing marriages all across the country and across the world. So I want to start off just by asking this question. What is the goal of marriage? Or perhaps I could put it more bluntly, marriage. What's the point, right? What's the point? Because if you can't know where you're going, you're certainly not ever going to arrive there. So a little few little thoughts kind of just to illustrate that and unpack that. First thing is that uh, marriage is a natural good. It's existed in every culture. It's existed in every society. If I asked you, is marriage a sacrament? Everybody says, yes, marriage is a sacrament. But a more accurate statement would be to say that Christ raised marriage to the dignity of a sacrament. So it wasn't a sacrament before Jesus Christ, okay? So, in other words, there's two kinds of marriages. There's marriages that are a sacrament, and there's marriages that aren't a sacrament. And we'll get into that right now. Let's just talk about the sacrament, though, okay? What's a sacrament? All you catechists know what a sacrament is. Sacrament's three things. It's a visible sign instituted by Christ that gives grace. That's what a sacrament is. So, visible sign of the Eucharist is host. Visible sign of the Eucharist is chalice. Visible sign of baptism is water. Visible sign of uh, confirmation is oil that's used to anoint. What's the visible sign of marriage? People say, I don't know the vows. I don't know the ring. I always throw people for a loop when I tell them that the visible sign of marriage is the covenant expression of sexual intercourse. They say, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. And I said, we believe that it's sacred, which is the foundation of everything that we believe about sexual morality. However, you can say a little bit more about the visible sign of marriage, because that's one visible sign uh, that's not out there in the open, right? There is a visible sign of marriage that is out there in the open. 
It's out there in the open for everybody, and that is the union of the husband and the wife. So you could say, what's the visible sign of marriage? The unity between the spouses is something that everybody's supposed to see. It's an image on earth of a reality in heaven. St. Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 5, and he says it's the mystery of the union between Christ and his church. Okay. Now, it's supernatural. So how is it possible? How is it possible? Well, it's possible by grace. Every sacrament is a visible sign that gives grace. So what's grace? All you catechists out there, you know what grace is? You know what grace is? Well, I'll tell you, to, to give you a really decent understanding of grace, I also like to ask a, a question that undergirds it. And that is, what is love? If you want to know what grace is, let's begin by asking what love is. And let's back up even further, because I love to explain what love is by talking about, you know how I love words. The Greeks had four words for love, and three of them are just so perfect to describe what I'm trying to get at. Three words for love are eros, philia, and agape. Okay? Eros, philia, and agape. Decent understanding of these words isn't a bad thing. Eros is the root of the word erotic, and everybody thinks, oh, it was, it's dirty, right? That's evil. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Eros is just any love whatsoever that's all about me. So, for example, if I have a great tasty pizza with a perfect crust piping hot right off the pan, and I say, ooh, I love pizza. Do I really love pizza? Right? Do, I, do, I, do I wish the well-being of pizza? No. I love what it does for me. If it gets too old or it gets too cruddy, I have no second thoughts about feeding it to a dog. I don't actually love the pizza. I love what it does for me. That's eros. You know, I, I love a clear night. Uh, I love looking at the stars. I don't wish the well-being of the weather or, you know, the celestial firmament. I love what it does for me. That's eros. Okay, so eros is any love that's all about me. Any love whatsoever that's all about me. could be anything. You can fill in any of the blanks. And actually, if you can... Just extrapolate off that, you can see where eroticism in and of itself is destructive to relationships. Why? Because who's it all about? It's all about me. And what happens to relationships when all I'm thinking about is me? They get destroyed, don't they? See the poison? That's the trouble. Next word for, for love is philia. And philia is friendship. That's what we all have naturally. Friendship. Friendship means... I love what you do for me, and I also intend your, your will and your goodness, too. But if you don't fulfill my needs, I'm going to start backing off, right? There's a little bit of selfishness in philia. So selfishness is half-half. Philia is half about you and half about me. The most perfect form of love of all is agape. And that's where it isn't about me at all. You want to know agape, think of, I don't know, mom running into a burning house to save her dying child, or you think about uh, maybe in the hospital and one spouse is ill and dying, the other is holding their hand, and the, the poor ill dying doesn't even know that they're there. Right? But it's all about what I can give. That's agape. Okay? So what is grace? We'll go back to the question of what is grace. Grace is God's life in you, 
that makes agape possible. That's what grace is. And that's what we're supposed to be all about. That's what marriage is all about. Uh, That's what Jesus meant when he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one. That's what what the scriptures meant when it said that it's not good for man to be alone. Agape is what we're created for, okay? So it's especially important in matrimony because in matrimony, there's this unique relationship based on a perfect complementarity between a man and a woman. And by the way, just as an aside, when the topic of same-sex marriage comes up, this is our answer. There is no such thing as a same-sex marriage. It's a contradiction in terms. The very nature of matrimony itself presumes a complementarity that just doesn't exist between two men or two women or any other combination you can dream up. It's a total complementarity that I hope people can intuit. It's physical complementarity. You know, all you need to do is open your eyes. It's a spiritual and it's an emotional complementarity. And that doesn't exist between anybody else. That's why marriage is between a man and a woman. And that's, by the way, why marriage is is limited to two. That's why we don't have threesomes and foursomes and quintets, right? Because there's that perfect reciprocity. And additionally, of course, one is uniquely able to collaborate with God's work in the work of creation. Men and women, by the very nature, are ordered towards the opening to the welcoming of new life. And it's one of the most divine things God ever did. You know why we call uh, uh, procreation procreation? We don't call it reproduction. You know, we're not amoebas. We don't split in half. Um, uh, Or any other term you can think of. It's procreation. Why? Because every time a new soul is conceived, something comes into existence which never existed before and will exist forever. God extends to husbands and wives this divine task of carrying on the work of creation. And you get very every single human soul that is conceived is going to live forever. And it's going to be given a name that's spoken in eternity. And this is a, 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 a complementarity that leads to a, a, a unique unbreakable union and that union, the oneness between Christ and his church that's God's plan for marriage. It's been distorted by sin, it's been wrecked by society, it's been dragged through the mud, but that's the blueprint, right? That's what God had in mind. And there's a story that I think really captures the essence of what God had intended for marriage. And I, I've used this story before. It's from a priest in the Detroit area. His name's Father John Ricardo. Um, and uh, when his dad died, his mom at the funeral home went up to the coffin and looked in the coffin and took his hand and said out loud, because of you, I know who God is. Now, if I could put into words God's plan for marriage, it would be that. So that at the end of one's life, one could look to the other spouse and say, because of you, I know who God is. We're supposed to lead one another to God. That's what makes present the visible goodness of God. That's what we're supposed to see. It's the mission of the laity, really. You know, priesthood, everybody talks about the priesthood being dragged through the mud. Priesthood and marriage rise together and they fall together. Kind of like two rungs of a ladder. Can you imagine a ladder that only has one rung? What good is it? It's useless. You need both of them. 
Priesthood needs marriage, and marriage needs the priesthood. The world needs priests to get up and do their thing. The world also needs married couples to show what the love of Christ in the church is meant to be, to make visible the invisible love of God. Okay, now that's not easy, is it? That's not easy at all. Marriage brings two people together wounded by original sin. That's what it does. People whose natural bent is not towards agape, is towards selfishness. And undoing that takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of effort. I know when I have a problem in the priesthood, I know it's not his problem, right? I've got one person I can point to. It's my problem. I've got a problem in the priesthood, the problem in with God. The trouble is when you're married, you've got a problem in your marriage, it, it, it's you and it's the other person, right? It's a mess. It's a great big mess. Add to that the reality that the human person exists in one of two different incarnations. Male and female, he created them. There's two ways of being human. You can be a man or you can be a woman, okay? And that means that we are, men and women, as different from one another as we can possibly be while still being of the same species. That's how different we are, one from another. And it makes it hard. Just, I, just uh, one of the wisest people I ever knew said of his wife after 15 years of marriage, the smartest decision I ever made in my marriage was to tra- stop trying to figure her out. And you can say the same thing of women to men. You'll never understand, a woman, you'll never understand what a man's like. You just won't. And a man will never understand a woman uh, because we're spiritually just that different. We're as different as we can be while still being in the same image. Okay? But different, we're also equal. And the grounding of that equality is that we're made in God's image. We're made in God's image. You want to know what God's image means? You've got to understand the Trinity. Most boring classes I ever took in the seminary was the Trinity. Until it finally clicked that the better you understand the Trinity, the better you understand reality, the better you understand the Trinity, the better you understand relationships, the meaning of life, the better you understand persons, because we're made in the image of a God who is nothing but a reckless exchange of love. Every person in the Trinity is what they are, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because they give themselves completely away to the other without getting anything back. Without getting anything back. And if you want to thrive as a human being, you've got to learn how to do the same thing. You've got to learn how to imitate who God is. Gaudium et Spes, Second Vatican Council, said this, man only discovers himself when he makes a sincere gift of himself. How do you find happiness? You give yourself away. You give yourself away. That's how happiness is found. And if you want to understand why the church teaches what it teaches on anything, okay, people get all upset about church teaching, you know, especially about marriage and sexuality and contraception and all these things, and the church has got to get with the times and all this. Honestly, save yourself a lot of trouble and just ask yourself this question. Um, is any behavior, any moral behavior, a sincere total gift of self? Or is it less than that? And if the answer is that it's less than that, chances are the church is going to say it's immoral. Because we're made to be in the image of a God that's nothing but complete self-giving. It's not authentic love if it's not a sincere gift of yourself.
So that's what we're called to. But the church has also told us there's four things you can expect from one another to help you to live like this. Okay? They're sometimes called the four goods of marriage. Permanence, partnership, faithfulness, and fruitfulness. Now, if you know your theology and you know your church history, you might know that St. Augustine, once upon a time, formulated three goods of marriage. Three goods of marriage. The good of fruitfulness or children, the good of faithfulness, and the good of permanence. Uh, Thomas Aquinas further expounded upon these in the Summa Theologica, and Pius XI uh, refined them in the encyclical letter Casti e Canubi. But in 1983, uh, the Church came out with a new code of canon law, and in the code of canon law, it used a brand new expression with referring to marriage. It talked about the good of the spouses. And ever since then, There's been a lot written about it to the point where now people speak not of three goods of marriage, but of four goods of marriage. So this is what I call the four gifts for life. Four things you can expect from one another and that you need to be dedicated to giving in return. Permanence, husband and wife commit to stay in their relationship no matter what. Partnership, making a sincere gift of themselves, body, mind, and spirit. Faithfulness. Promising to belong to each other in a covenant of love and fruitfulness. Marriage covenant is fundamentally ordered towards the procreation and education of children. So take a quick look at each one of those four. And for each one of those four, uh, I tag a little question onto the end and I say, what's the key to making those four goods possible? Okay? So four goods, four goods of marriage, right? Four goods of marriage, permanence, partnership. Faithfulness and fruitfulness. Which one's the most important? Which one of those four is the most important? I would argue the most important one is permanence. Okay, because without permanence, you don't get the other three. Permanence is like the basket that holds the other three together. So we remember a couple of things. Marriage is a sign of God's covenant to his people. And secondly, we know that God keeps his promises. That's why marriage in Christ is permanent. The sacrament of matrimony is a sign of God's loyalty to us. Okay? So that's permanence. What's the key that makes permanence possible? I would argue that the key is mercy. Mercy. Mercy is what makes permanence possible. Now, let's talk about mercy for just a moment. The basic idea for mercy comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they who show mercy. Mercy shall be theirs. I've heard this uh, phrase bantered about, uh, you know, hither and thither on social media. People will say things like, uh, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. You ever heard that before? I hope not. It's complete baloney. You, you, you always deserve to give somebody your best, period. If you don't give somebody your best, you're not merciful. If you want to receive mercy, you've got to show it, Okay. And life gives you plenty of opportunities to show it. So let's talk about ways we can show mercy to one another. 1980, this is my favorite reference for mercy. Pope John Paul II, they wrote an entire encyclical letter on mercy called Dives in Misericordia, which means rich in mercy. And he talks about five words for mercy, five different words for mercy. And, uh, you know, biblical Hebrew with, uh, with only five or 6,000 different words has five words for mercy. Can contrast that with modern English in common parlance. Someone with a, a vast vocabulary would have about 100,000 words. 
at their disposal. So we're talking about a language with one twentieth of the number of words as modern English, but with five different words for mercy, all of which tell us something about what we mean when we say mercy. Okay, first word for mercy is hesed. And hesed means kindness and forgiveness, and this is the key to it, which is not deserved. You want to know the meaning of hesed? Think about the prodigal son. He totally didn't deserve anything except to be shown the door and a swift kick in the behind after what he did. But that's not what the father's like. Mercy belongs to those who do not deserve it. A very similar term for mercy is anim. If you ever know a woman named Hannah or Anne, the name comes from this word, anim, which means to bestow this mercy which you do not deserve graciously and abundantly. Lavish, undeserved kindness on people who don't deserve it. That's another word for mercy. Here's another, one of my favorite words for mercy, rachamin. Rachamin is a word that describes the love that a mother has for a newborn. And only a mother can know what that's like. Uh, the rest of us have to learn by observing. You know, you can look at this screaming little thing that does nothing but demand, 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 make noise, and soil his diapers. And the mother is just head over heels, irrationally in love with this tiny little thing. Why? Why? Because it's hers, that's why. Remember, I did an emergency baptism at the hospital, and I went into the NICU. And uh, this little tiny thing is, I mean, it's about the size of a hamster, this preborn little tiny thing. Wasn't going to live but a couple of hours, and I took, you know, a d- d- distilled, purified water and an eyedropper, and sticking my hand through an incubator with gloves, I baptized this tiny little thing, and the mother and the father were there watching it, completely choked up in tears. Now I walked out of the hospital and I stopped and asked why. I mean, just rationally speaking, there's no relationship there. They haven't even given the child a name. And they know the child isn't going to live. Why are they so choked up? It's Rachamim. That's what God says he has for you. No matter what. Because you're his kid. Right? doesn't matter what you do. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's just the way God is for you. And he says that's the way we need to be to one another. Another word is Seneca. This is another great word. Seneca is the righteousness that God says that he owes to himself. Why will God be merciful? Because I owe it to myself. Because of my holy name, I will show them. It's not deserved, it's just, it's just how I roll. That's what God says. Okay? So if you ever lose faith in yourself, you know, if you think that you've gotten so bad you can't be forgiven, just remember God never loses faith in himself. And there's an entire word for mercy based on that idea, okay? And the last word is emet. And emet is a word that it's, it's, it, it means that it's like the ground you stand on. It's not something you ever take for granted. It's like the ground you stand on. That's what mercy means, okay? That's what mercy means. And you could say that, you know, someone doesn't deserve it and it's not just. Mercy goes beyond justice. It's like love goes beyond justice. It's the way God shows mercy to us. By paying a price that we ought to pay. Okay, so here's what you say as the foundation for permanence, what you owe to one another and what you expect from the other. Okay? You say to yourself, I'm a flawed individual, I'm married to another flawed individual. 
I will hurt this person, and this person will hurt me. That's just the way things are. That's why the three most important words in marriage are not, I love you. Three most important words in marriage are, I forgive you. They're more important, and they're a lot harder to say, aren't they? It's the first good of marriage and the key to it. Second good of marriage is partnership. And it says, I'm going to share my whole life with you. This is what the church calls the good of the spouses. It's partnership. What's the key to partnership? What's the key to partnership? I would argue that the key to partnership is humility. Now, I've talked about humility before in, in homilies. Uh, and it's important to remember, we need to repeat this to ourselves. Humility is not thinking that I'm the worst. Humility is not saying I'm terrible. Humility is actually best understood by, by not thinking of yourself at all. Humility is when you're self-forgetful. The number of things in the world that makes it hard, consumerism makes it very hard. We're living in a world of advertising. Advertising telling you you're constantly not good enough. You're too fat, you're too thin, you're too gray, you're too old, you're too out of style. You're just not good enough. You've got to change your car, you've got to change your look. All of which leads you to think about you, which kills humility and kills partnership. Secularism makes it hard because it makes us forget God. And God reminds us that he's the giver of absolutely everything. See, without gratitude, you can't be humble. And you can't have gratitude without humility. And secularism teaches you to be deficient in humility because you, you, know, you, you were living in a world that makes you think you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. When the truth of the matter is God's given you everything. A lack of humility kills partnership because it asks the following question. Is that all I get? Is that all I get? I was working in a homeless shelter once uh, over Christmas break. I did it for several years when I was in college. I volunteered to work in a homeless shelter in D.C. And I thought I was being so good, right? Wasn't I just a little saint working in a homeless shelter? And I naively thought that every homeless person would be just so grateful for my sheer wonderfulness. Ladling soup to them. <laughs> Quickly dispelled that rumor, that, 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 that illusion. I was ladling soup to one guy and he looks at me and he's like, that all I get? I was like, I'm giving my break away, Christmas break away to be at your service. How dare you ask? Just rude question, but that's what a lack of gratitude can be. I remember once I was a chaplain at O'Connell High School and I once again thought I was being so great I gave all the kids pizza. And uh, after giving all the pizza out to the kids, I remember a couple of kids get, got their free pizza that I ordered and I bought. What they ask? Is that all I get? Is that all I get? What a snotty question. See, the trouble is, if you look, take a critical look at your life, you'll realize you're saying that all the time to your spouse. You don't say it verbally, um, but you're saying, is that all I get? And what that means is you're forgetting that everything's a gift. And it destroys relationships. It's a lack of humility. We say that to God in the silence of our hearts all day long. Is that all I get? You look at your family. Is that all I get? You look at your health. Is that all I get? You look at your abilities. Is that all I get? You look at your talents. Gross lack of humility. So how do you grow in humility? How do you grow in humility? Well, I think the simplest way to grow in humility is to open up your eyes and look around and realize that life is diminishing you all the time. Every single day. Um, there are a million ways in which you have to live a little death. 
in which you face someone else who's smarter, better looking, more popular, told a funnier joke, is younger, stronger, thinner, more energetic, has a better marriage, nicer home, smarter children, better neighborhood, diminishments. Every time you're lessened in comparison to somebody else, it delivers us from the delusions under which we live. It frees us from pride if you'll turn it into a prayer, if you'd be willing to grow, okay? If you'd be willing to grow. I also like to share this. I've shared this in homilies before, but it always bears repeating. Mother Teresa once gave 10 steps for how to choose humility. And these are really important to be familiar with. They should sound familiar. 10 steps to choosing humility in, in, in your life. Number one, speak about yourself as little as you possibly can. Can I make a little dovetail off that? Try this. Again, I've said this in homilies before, but try not to use the word I. It's not possible, okay? You you have to use the word I, but try not to. Imagine rephrasing everything from an I statement to a statement that's you-centered or centered on other people. Um, Instead of saying, I'm tired, I don't know, maybe you could say, maybe... Maybe some people are, 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 are thinking this is running a little bit long. It's suddenly not a self-centered statement. It's a, it's a great exercise. Try it. They say John the 23rd never used the word I. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's possible, but it's a great exercise. Speak about yourself as little as you possibly can. Number two, keep busy with your own business. Very simple. Right? It's when you're not busy with your own business that you have suddenly realize everything everybody else is doing or not doing. Lack of humility. Number three, accept insults. And irritations with a sense of humor. Try that. You really detach from yourself if you can laugh at yourself, especially when someone says something that is unkind and true and true. Number four, don't dwell on the faults of other people. They've got their faults. So do I. So do you. We all do. Right? No good dwelling on somebody else's faults. It's a lack of humility because you're not thinking about your own. Number five, accept criticism even when it's undeserved. You know, St. Teresa of Avila used to say that she never cared when someone would criticize her for something she didn't do or blame her for something she didn't do because she said, um, I've, been, uh, I've, been so, I've gotten away with so many things in my life scot-free that nobody ever found out about. It helps pay down the debt. <laughs> so accept criticism even when it's undeserved. Whenever possible, let other people have their way. Unless some principle is at stake. Number seven, accept being forgotten. How many people get upset when they're not remembered? Or being disregarded. Even being held in contempt. Number eight, be courteous when provoked. Be polite when provoked by somebody else. You know how people are like, snap back with a snappy retort. Try being courteous. It's a way to grow in humility. Number nine, don't seek to be admired. Don't even try. Right? Life's too short. Who cares? But don't seek it. It's a way of growing in humility. And number ten, this one's really hard. Give in in discussions even when you're right. <laughs> I, the only thing I would say is a, is a caveat, unless a principle is at stake, unless somebody's going to get hurt. You know, but if, if somebody else wants to tell you that disco was the greatest music in history, let them win. Okay? Don't fight them even when you're right. The third good of marriage, faithfulness. A marriage commitment can't have strings attached. 
Jesus laid down his very life for us, to enter into a union with us for all eternity. And the faithfulness of God to us is mirrored in the faithfulness of a husband and a wife. What's the key to faithfulness? Okay, hang on to your seats. I think the key to faithfulness is intimacy. However, intimacy doesn't have anything to do with physical expression. Intimacy doesn't mean sex. You don't need me to tell you, for many women, sex is anything but intimate. Intimacy is the revealing of who you are to another person, knowing that you'll be accepted for who you are. Intimacy is the free will to be vulnerable, knowing knowing that you're safe. That's intimacy. Okay? Intimacy. Adultery never just happens. There's always an emotional distancing. There's always a loss of that emotional closeness. And without that emotional closeness, temptation has a field day. The remedy that brings it back is carefree timelessness. Carefree timelessness. What makes relationships grow? Carefree timelessness. Sharing time with someone and forgetting to count the hours. Wasn't that the way it was when two sweethearts fell in love for the first time? What do sweethearts do? They talk. What do they talk about? Nothing. Right? What, do, what do teenagers do? Where they're sweethearts, they talk. Back in my day, they talked on the phone. I don't know what they do now. Maybe they send text messages. No wonder, no, no wonder dating is a mess. But back in the day, they'd talk on the phone. How long would they talk on the phone? Mom would come down and scream because you'd be on the phone. Forever, that's how long you talked on the phone. How long were they, what were they talking about when they were on the phone? What were they talking about? They were talking about nothing. Carefree timelessness. Um, you have to build that. You have to plan that. Um, you have to come up with strategies in which you can make that happen. And it means other things that you're not doing. Okay? But that's how faithfulness is built. The last good of marriage is a good uh, of fruitfulness. And unfortunately, this isn't something that everyone can have. But it's the very nature of married love that's ordered towards the procreation and education of children. The supreme gift of marriage, as I said before, of partaking in God's own creativity, God's own act of, of, of creating, is, continues on. And when two people get married, the church asks, will you accept children lovingly from God or bring them up according to the law of Christ and his church? And for some people, they think that means having them baptized and then coming back for First Communion and then coming back for Confirmation. But the truth of the matter is, it's a commitment for a moral, spiritual, and supernatural upbringing uh, of which parents are absolutely without any possible substitute. You know, go back to that image of the ladder with the two rungs. Um, the priest without the parents, it's kind of like a ladder with only one rung. There's only so much the church can do, and it's not very much, not without the parents. Now, one of the things for a really observant and devout parent, a very great anxiety, is they are raising children in a world that has gone nuts. It's so complete, completely gone mad. Uh, um, and, and they want to know what to do. And this is a very, very hard question to answer. Because... Uh, by the nature of children being raised in the world, there's only but so much that you can do. However, um, you know, a few things that, 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 that I've shared with people in the past, one I've put in the bulletin a couple of times, and that is there was a, a, a study done by the Swiss government uh, that revealed some astounding facts with regard to the generational transmission of faith. Okay, and it asked the question, what happens when the father attends Mass and the mother doesn't attend Mass? What happens to the kids when they grow up? 
and they found that the percentage of children that practice their faith as adults when the father attends Mass but mom doesn't was 38%. 38%. 44% would go to Mass occasionally and 18% would drop their faith altogether. However, if the mother attended Mass regularly and the father didn't, what percentage of children would keep their faith as adults? The answer was 2%. 37% would attend Mass regularly and 60% would drop their faith altogether. And it said that uh, one of the reasons that was suggested for that is that children tend to take their cues about home life from mom. And they take the, tend to take their cues about the outside world from dad. Whether that's politically correct or not, I don't really care. That's apparently just the way nature is. With the message being that if dad takes faith seriously, God is to be taken seriously. And it confirms the essential role of a father as a spiritual leader. So, you know, dads who are practicing their faith are pretty much doing all they can do to help their children, to keep their faith in a world gone nuts. The rest is in the hands of God. There's very little uh, that parents can do to ensure the well-being of their children. I used to teach at a high school that I won't name. It's not O'Connell High School, because I'm on record for saying I'm teaching at O'Connell High School. Taught at a different Catholic high school. Um, And uh, I gave a retreat to the faculty of that high school. And one of the things that I said was, I think you guys aren't letting go enough. It's almost like you're trying to force these kids to grow up Catholic. And there's a certain degree to which you just have to let go. Um, and surprisingly, a number of the graduates of this, of, this, of this high school would abandon their faith because they felt like it was rammed down their throats. So you can't guarantee your kids are going to grow up with the faith. All you can do is be a witness. And like the father of the prodigal son, you have to give them the freedom to go where they're going to go, knowing that they always have a home they can come back to, that you love them, and that, uh, and, and that, and that you love them with the love of God that's always, that's always open. I've been told by others who are wiser than myself and by others who have children. I, of course, do not have children. You'll be relieved to know. Okay? But I've been told that parenting is like coaching. I've been told that parenting is like coaching. I've been told that until the age of five, they're yours. They're totally yours. John Paul II once said that if you pray with children before the age of five, you've given them an armor that will defend them for the rest of their lives. I don't know how he knows that, but... I figured he had a straight, he had a direct line. Until the age of five, they're yours. Until the age of 12, I've been told it's like they're, uh, it's like they're at practice for sports. After the age of 12, it's like they're in the game and you're just the coach on the sidelines and there's only so much you can do once the game has gotten started. Okay? But the most important thing parents can do, apart from raising them in the faith and being a good witness in the faith, is to be faithful to one another. What children need more than anything else to keep them feeling safe in a dangerous world, to give them a great shelter, to know that no matter what happens, whatever problems might emerge, they'll always be safe, are parents who are united with one another in a union based on Christ. That's the very, very best that parents can do to help raise their children. That and get down on your knees and pray and offer sacrifice. St. Therese Little Flower once said, my whole strength lies in prayer and sacrifice. These are my invincible arms. They can move hearts far better than words. I know it by experience. So that's the good of faithfulness. That's the good of faithfulness. And this is, these are the four gifts for life that make present the mystery uh, that St. Paul talks about in his letter to the Ephesians. 
You know, the uh, word for mystery when rendered from, from, Latin, from Greek into Latin is sacramentum, and that is why we call marriage a sacrament. Paul himself used the word in his letter to the Ephesians, just in case we had any doubt. So that's the grasp that we need to have when we try to understand what God intended marriage to be. Because first and foremost, uh, it's a vocation. A vocation. When I tell people what a vocation is, you know, they think of the ITT Technical Institute by which you can have a, a vocation to be a computer repair specialist in 10 weeks or less. But the truth is the word vocation comes from the word vocare, which means to call. And every vocation is a call. The call comes from God. The call comes from God and it's directed to our hearts. And the call is always to God. It's always a call to heaven. And one thing we need to meditate on over and over and over again is that heaven is a place of perfect love. If it's not perfect, it's not getting into heaven. And perfect love is what happens when the ego goes down to zero. Perfect love is what happens when all the selfishness in us is gone. Which is why the minute you ask, what's in it for me? your vocation begins to die. Don't wait for your spouse to start living this. The idea is we're supposed to be living it for for one reason and one for one reason only. It's what God has called us to. It's what God has called people to in the institution of marriage. And that is why I would say that marriage is a dying institution. Just not the kind that Cameron Diaz ever envisioned, right? Just not that kind. It's a dying institution but it's dying to selfishness, and that is the death that leads to life. Amen? God bless you.